Well, now to the country's deadliest and most costly natural hazards and their landslides. You might not have picked that, despite what the country's been experiencing this year. It's an unsurprising revelation for those perhaps suffering in the aftermath of Cyclone Gabriel. Landslides triggered by the cyclone ultimately killed two volunteer firefighters at Muruwai, condemned hundreds of homes, left thousands of scars on the landscape and farmers grappling uh, with trying to go about their business. Months of painstaking work has since revealed the scale of the cyclone's devastation, with scientists mapping more than 140,000 slips. Cumulatively, landslides have caused more deaths in New Zealand than any other natural hazard and led to $300 million or lead to $300 million in insurance claims each year. This is according to researchers at the University of Canterbury. Just last week, Auckland Council unanimously voted to buy out 700 properties damaged by floodwaters and slips during the Auckland anniversary weekend floods and Cyclone Gabrielle. And it's projected to get worse, not better, with climate change. Dr Timothy Stahl of the School of Earth and Environment at University of Canterbury, his senior lecturer, says climate change and natural hazards interact in a way that exacerbate the risk of damage to lives and property. He leads one of ten university research teams awarded a combined $4.5 million in funding to better understand this relationship. Kia ora, Timothy. Welcome. Morena, Catherine. Thanks for having me on the show. I think it's a surprise because we have major periodic earthquakes and they are devastating and they are hugely expensive. And so we think earthquakes or something else or maybe floods. But landslides are the most deadly natural hazard uh, as well as the most expensive. Can you explain our history with them? Yeah, that's right. So I mean, it's really a cumulative effect where we have landslides occurring very frequently in our very actively eroding country here. Um, so the cumulative effect of costs and casualties is greatest for landslides. But as single events go, like uh, sudden onset hazards uh, like earthquakes are the, the bigger ticket item there. With the changing climate as we are experiencing it so far and um recent experience. You've got to be careful about banking everything on recent experience, but just extraordinary rainfall at frequency and volume uh, in the north and northeast of the country, for example. When, um, is that, um, has that been on an historically record-breaking level? And is that a factor in landslides being as prevalent as they have been recently? Yeah, it's a great question um, and it's one of the ones that we're seeking to tackle in our research program but there's there's an entire science to you know attributing extreme events to climate change and what we'd like to investigate in part is taking that one step further so you know taking the extreme event attributions of say specific storms to climate change human induced climate change onto say uh, landsliding resulting from those storms how will you do that what will the research involve variety of different methods. Um, So our approach is a combination of field investigations of fault lines and of landslides, as well as both uh, data-based modeling and physics-based modeling, try to simulate how these uh, processes uh, interact. So we can model, for example, increased storm frequency, intensity, and duration on the incidence of, uh, say, earthquake-induced flooding or earthquake-induced landslides. And that gets around the um, the issue, I suppose, of not having 
many of these events occurring historically, but we do have a few data sets that we can pull from and use to construct our, our models. So in some ways, um, just listening to you, we're talking about the resilience of land to an event like unusually heavy rainfall or an earthquake, and that will have many pre-existing factors, that resilience or that behaviour? That's right, yeah. Maybe one way of thinking about it um, is breaking it down into preconditioning factors and triggering factors. So we know that, um, and this works both ways. So, you know, earthquakes can precondition the landscape for climate-related hazards and vice versa. Climate hazards can precondition the landscape for earthquake-triggered hazards. A good example of this is what happened in uh, Hokkaido, um, kind of the North Island of Japan in, in 2018, where uh, there was a magnitude 6.7 earthquake that triggered thousands of landslides and it uh, killed approximately 40 people or so. Um, and that was preceded just one day earlier by the strongest typhoon in 25 years. And so you had these saturated hill slopes that were primed for failure. The earthquake was just kind of the final straw that caused them to, to fail, leading to a natural disaster. And this, again, is a lesson from the recent past that saturated ground is so much more vulnerable, whether it's sinkholes in downtown Auckland or whether it is even a moderate rain event setting off more slides on farmland in Tairawhiti. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, and it's not just you know saturation of land leading to gravitational slope failure or, or landslides, but um, there's also pretty clear interactions between earthquakes and flood hazards. An example there would be what happened in Christchurch. It's a lovely study by Matthew Hughes, who's also based here at the University of Canterbury, looked at how faults deformed the land surface from the Canterbury earthquakes and how that led to an increase in longer-term flood hazard due to the subsidence around Christchurch. So is Kaikoura another example? Kaikoura is another example, yeah. So uh, different parts of the coastline uh, moved up and down there. It was a very complex event. One of the areas that we've published on is um, up the Clarence River Valley, the Waiotoa, where a uh, particularly high displacement fault called the Papatea Fault displaced the river um, during the event by up to about eight meters vertically. And this led to a, a natural dam of sorts that diverted the river um, around the fault scarp in a, in a few different locations. And it's now permanently uh, avulsed, we, we say, or displaced or deflected the river out of its original course. Um, and that kind of thing is, is a really acute, both spatially and temporally example of how earthquakes and flood hazards can interact. But the same thing can happen over much larger spatial scales and longer time scales, say with uh, sea level rise around coastal regions. Will this be a forward-looking study then, or will there be historic data that you can use to look back as well? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, so in the empirical sort of data-centered approach, we we pull on data from historical events in order to forecast or anticipate what could happen in future events. Um, and in other cases, we're, we're using you know the known physics of things like uh, how rivers flow and how landslides fail in order to model how, say, increased saturation or earthquake shaking will, will lead to um, kind of these consecutive or compounding hazards. What's the potential use. We're talking a lot about infrastructure at the moment, um, both the state of it and also future-proofing it. 
And could this potentially inform engineers on where to put roads, bridges, railway lines, for example, or underground horizontal infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the the logical flow there is that you know we need these mitigation solutions uh, and land use planning decisions to be based on sound, up to date science. And, and in many cases, we're planning for or mitigating for individual hazards and not considering how multiple hazards can interact with each other. That's uh, you know there's a there's a purely just cost benefit analysis to be done there. Um, there's this widely cited study from the U.S. National Institute of Building Sciences that found, you know, every dollar spent on federal uh, mitigation grants, kind of the engineering domain, uh, saved $6 in the event of a disaster. And so you, you really do need to have those mitigation decisions to be based on uh, sound science that takes into account how different hazards can interact. Will it be usable? Will you have a model where you'll literally be able to use a slider and envisage the impacts on a given part of, I don't know, say the um, west coast of the South Island, um, were there to be a thought about where to locate a new piece of infrastructure or to move it, relocate. Will you actually be able to have a model that you can put different inputs into and say, in this event, we can expect this impact? In some cases, that that would be uh, the case, yeah. Um, An example there would be our our modelling of these earthquake-induced floods. Um, so the, the physics uh, of rivers and uh, kind of coastal environments is relatively well understood. We can also, in advance of an earthquake, deform the land surface uh, with existing geological knowledge and some fancy mathematics. And so we can absolutely combine different scenarios of, say, uh, earthquake deformation at the ground surface and different river discharges or uh, sea level ranges to model uh, a range of different um, scenarios and even take a probabilistic approach to say what is the, the most likely over a given time period. This has relevance immediately, just thinking of Kaikoura and of course New Zealand's landscape is what it is. There's only so many places you can put a road sometimes. Um, and mm. you know the, the reconstruction of the state highway uh, following Kaikoura is a really interesting example. But even right now with what they're dealing with in Coromandel, trying to um, you know fully uh, reconstruct transport routes it seems to me really sophisticated models would assist literally with where you might go and why you might go three kilometres longer in order to avoid trouble, right? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, there's really two kinds of interaction or broad classes of interaction of hazards that need to be taken into account when making those kinds of decisions. One is, you know, the compounding risk of uh, hazards working together to cause more negative impacts or wider spread impacts. And then there's the sort of confounding effects um, where you could have unanticipated consequences of, say, mitigating or avoiding for one hazard, putting you at risk of another one. Um, and so taking a multi-hazard approach is is really critical. And I think it's going to become more and more the norm in both science and mitigation strategies Um, over the coming decades as we see the consequences of climate change really play out. Were you surprised by the sheer number of landslides following Gabrielle in in particular? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I'm not involved in the the science um, program there, but a few of my colleagues are here, and I I think they're compiling one of the the largest landslide databases in any global event anywhere. So 
in terms of global standards, it's a pretty significant event. And do you have any, you know, hypotheses on on why that was the case? Is there anything to do with the geology uh, and or geography of the area where this? Uh, or, I mean, obviously, a great sensitivity is what has happened. Um, with with trees, the clearing of trees, the replanting of certain types of trees. But is there anything else in particular that, suge- that, that, that suggests a reason for that scale of landslide? Yeah, so I, I guess from the geologist's perspective, um, the whole Hawke's Bay region and, and um, maybe just the eastern half of the North Island where you have these relatively weak sedimentary rocks that in some cases you can just scrape away at an outcrop. It's kind of um, generous to call them rocks in the first place. They're they're extremely susceptible to all sorts of landslides, both really deep-seated landslides that can be millions and millions of cubic meters worth of material and these uh, shallower uh, debris avalanches, if you like. So the geology is, is very weak. Um, it's my understanding that the antecedent rainfall, um, that is the, the rainfall prior to the extreme event of the cyclone, was quite high. And so you had um, these rocks at sort of their their storage capacity, if you like, of, of water. Um, and then the extreme event itself just pushed things over the edge. Complicating your modelling is that this isn't just a simple... Uh event A impacts or hazard A impacts on hazard B, there's a feedback loop as well. And have you got to find a way using maths or whatever else to try and anticipate that feedback loop? Yeah, um, that, that's exactly right. And, and it's it can be complicated because if we're drawing on past events, we are not necessarily drawing on uh, examples that are or have been affected by climate change to the degree that they will be in the future. So we have to be very cautious of that. But there, um, you've highlighted that there are a range of different relationships and feedback loops. Basically, multi-hazards can be concurrent hazards. That's events that overlap in time and space. They can be consecutive, which is multiple hazards uh, occurring closely spaced in time, but aren't necessarily related causally to each other. And then the, the real focus of our research program, we which is on cascading hazards. These are secondary hazards that are a direct or indirect result of the initial hazard event. Um, and yeah, um, climate change interacts with earthquake and, and landslide hazards in, in all of those all of those ways. Uh, Timothy, thank you very much. Timothy Stahl, he's one of 10 university research teams awarded to combine $4.5 million to better understand this relationship between climate change and natural hazards.